The Joyful Noise Radio Hour.
dudes. <laughs> look at you, Adam. You you look like you're in a David Lynch film already. I am. Did you shave, Adam? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you're taking this shit far too soon. Yeah. Hi, Carl. Hi, David. Nice to see you, man. Thanks for jumping on. Man, where to begin with you guys? Let's start at the very beginning. The, the very beginning. beginning. So your your conception. Where were you conceived, each of you? Adam? I guess in Geelong, Victoria. All right. In uh, what year? Well, I was born in 75, but I would have been conceived in 1974. All right. How about you, David? I was conceived and born in Las Vegas, Nevada. Wow. My sister was conceived in Paris and born in Las Vegas. Um, I was both conceived and um, I came out in 1960. And here we are, 1960. Right on. I was born in 1984. My birthday is July 4th, 1984, which is a very like Orwellian. That's great. Does that mean I was conceived in 1983? I guess it does. Yeah. Maybe you had a really quick gestation. (laughs) (laughs) Get me out of here. (laughs) I guess I just wanted people to to hear the story about how you guys met and how you became friends. And I, I mean, Adam, like, you know, arrived in Hollywood, like a, you know, in those movies, when you see like the aspiring, you know, actor, actress or whatever, like that's arriving in Hollywood from the bus or whatever, except it was a ship that came in from Australia. And uh, I had no aspirations. (laughs) Um, I kind of fell into making videos, but I had, I didn't didn't do video work before you moved to LA. Huh? And, uh, like, why did you even want to come to L.A.? A girl. Ah. I already sort of was pen pals with Lou Barlow and also David Lynch. And both of them said, you should come to L.A. So I was like, okay. <laughs> I guess it's pretty impressive. You must, you must have good uh, pen pal uh, skills. Good penmanship. Yeah, it's just just the handwriting that did it. When I wrote David Lynch a letter, I I cut a little uh, news article out and stuck it in there, and it was about a guy that was having surgery and he farted, and I guess maybe they were burning <laughs> something off his ass, and uh, so his fart caught on fire. So I cut that out and stuck it in the letter. I guess he liked that. That, that made an impression. <laughs> that's funny so when did you meet david yeah yeah david yeah the um, guy on the call your best <laughs> i had actually met david at a house party at lou barlow's house in 2010 but we didn't really become friends until a couple of years later when i asked david to be in a music video i was directing for useless children a band from Melbourne with Steve, my dumb numbers bass player, Steve. Yeah, yeah. We met at a place called Cowboys and Turbans in Silver Lake that had a 
a melding of Mexican food and Indian food. Like you could get a that sounds weird. Antica masala burrito. It's so good. So good. Yeah, really? Wow. So good. I asked David to play the character of Jimmy, a janitor, based on a real life janitor that I knew in Geelong, who was uh uh developmentally challenged. So a perfect role for you, right, David? Yeah, Carl, that's right. Typecasting. <laughs> the camera work in that video is so shaky because I was laughing so much. <laughs> because you were yeah. laughing so much? <laughs> then uh, a few years later, we returned to the same character of Jimmy. Because in the intervening few years when David and I would hang out, he would make Jimmy faces or do things that would be Jimmy like. So like, oh, we really have to. <laughs> yeah. And so was that for the dumb numbers video? Yeah, that was for Unbury the Hatchet. Yeah, yeah, cool. I play uh, David's mom uh, in that video. Jimmy's mom. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So I, I think, okay, my introduction to you guys or how, how we became friends so many years ago. Here's the way I remember it, Adam. And you tell me if this is accurate to your memory. But I remember getting an email from a random dude named Adam Harding that was just basically like, hey guys, uh, you know, here are some of my songs and, you know, would you like to hear some demos? And uh, by the way, you know, Lou Barlow and Murph and Dale Crover play on these. <laughs> what the fuck? Like, That's about how right. is that? Like, how, why? Like, you know, and then, um, that started our just conversation because, you know, you had uh, collaborate. And this is like early days of the label where I didn't know any of those guys. I knew Dale then because he'd been in some music videos that I'd made for Lou. And I, I hadn't yet asked him to record yet. Or maybe I had asked him, but we hadn't yet recorded when I sent you some songs. But shortly after. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah um okay so that's the one inaccuracy you sent the dale song a little later okay and around that time this was maybe 2000 late 2011 and then we talked all through 2012 and that's when david and i started hanging out and then david told me that he had a solo album yeah and and you're the one that made the connection for us to release the solo album to release right. you look like a spider and I remember you came out to LA, Carl, and took us to a, a, a fancy Japanese restaurant. And I had been listening to, do you know that Jeffrey Lewis song, Don't Let the Label Take You Out to Lunch? <laughs> no, I, I should. I should hear that. No, But I, I remember asking you, uh, are we going to be paying for this? We, we chose that restaurant because it's really expensive. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, you motherfuckers better want this bad. Now, when we go out, you would choose a, a cheaper place, I hope. Del Taco. Del Taco. <laughs> or, the, or your uh, weird Mexican Indian place. Yeah, what year was that? So that was like 2011 or 2012, early 2012, maybe, when I came out there to LA and met you guys for the first time? 2012 or 13. Yeah. Because both of our records came out the in 2013. Right. Yeah, and you and I had a long process. You know what? Like with that first dumb numbers record, I think that was really one of the first 
experiences of mine of like really delving in and curating, creative directing a project on that level, which is something I love doing and have discovered is kind of my, uh, I'm, I'm way better at that than I am at, you know, project management. Let's put it that way. And it was awesome to be able to work with you and like on sequence and, and even coming up with the band name and shit, you know, yeah. uh, the originally you were thinking formed under my own name and self-released some stuff, but it just did, it felt silly. You know, when you have a band and you have people playing with you. Yeah. That's a great band name, man. That was Hanalore. That was Lou's daughter, Hanalore. She came up with that? Yeah. She oh, was I doing didn't know that. Uh, homework. Uh, <laughs> oh, so she like blurted it out and you heard it. Yeah. Yeah. She said it and then Lou texted it to me. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I, th I thought that that name came from some sort of trick that David Lynch taught you about how to come up he with name. me a very elaborate uh, method and I still in storage somewhere have the tissue box that I, I used to, I had a tissue box and a Sharpie and I wrote down this method and uh, randomly. Yeah. Um, so I did that. And the one that I really liked ended up being already taken. Oh, wow. That's weird. Do you remember mm -hmm. what it was? Bunyip Moon. Interesting, man. That's so then on that first record, what became the first on numbers record, um, David, you were not on that but you did the layout photography from david lynch and then david yeah. Lou, you actually came up with the logo right you did the logo and then since then you guys have collaborated musically um with the second dumb numbers record and then the uh yeah. the splits the split series right and then more recently very recently yeah the new thing we've spent some time together in the hot tub <laughs> so okay we got to explain this or explore this a little bit david you've got a hot tub at your place and uh adam is your frequent house guest or whatever and you spend a lot of uh and and, and you're you're free with your body let's put it that way right you're not inhibited by these uh puritanical uh norms me yeah not really don't look don't look. <laughs> I remember you telling me that story. <laughs> and uh, I mean, you know, you've been known to like get naked on stage at Jesus Lizard shows. Like, man, I got naked in the shower this morning. Oh, really? Yeah, well, I got naked in the bathroom. In the bathroom. Okay, okay, all right. So you didn't get your clothes all wet. That's that would be. Um, hey, by the way, uh, so I first saw the jesus lizard uh i don't know if you remember nashville remember when i came down to nashville we hung out for like a minute before the show but like anyway it was my first time seeing the jesus lizard and it was my last show before the pandemic and oh, what oh. a good one to have what smack dab two years ago yeah it was awesome to to finally be able to see the jesus lizard live and like seeing you you know just be a maniac on stage and crowd surf and and everything like and i can't imagine that that kind of thing happening anymore you know unless there's like a covid cure or whatever but like you know just the 
the bodily fluids, you know, that were being exchanged. Scared, yeah. Yeah, between you and the crowd, like that would be frowned upon these days, huh? Yeah. Maybe we all have to do the like uh, that. Uh, <clears throat> what's his name from the Flaming Lips? Who has the oh big right the bubble? Yeah. yeah. Everybody be one of those. Right. I think they did that actually. I think they uh, they did a show where it's like everyone gets their bubble, gets their own bubble. Wow. Yeah. So the last time we all saw each other uh, in person, I I think was when you came through the Flipper and you did almost live recording on our rooftop of our old building, which was the last. Totally live. Oh yeah, totally live. Yeah, you guys made us cross out the almost. Yeah.
I'd like to thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves, and I hope we pass the audition. Yeah, man, that was special, dude. Well, I like that uh, Jonathan's there in the video. Yeah, yep. And Marina. Yeah. And Carl. With Olive. Me. Olive is a tiny infant in that video, man. It's the most bizarre experience of my life to watch consciousness enter a person gradually. I've seen the opposite. I've seen it gradually leave. But oh, wow. Well, that that could be fucked up too. I remember sending a mix of that flipper rooftop performance to Ted, and he was like, "I, I don't hear any bass." What in the fuck are you listening to this on? <laughs> wow. And you remember also we did a partial take first and uh, Rachel was saying, David, you got to come in on that. Da, 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 da. Going, well, I am. She goes, no, you're not. I said, yes, I am. And I was. Later on when we started editing it, I sent the the video to Rachel and David to prove that he was actually doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> video evidence. Yeah. Undisputable. Yeah. I remember it being brutally hot. The tar was yeah, melting. Like the surface of the tar, that, that oh. black roof surface was melting. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. Oh, and our I, AC went out too, I think. It was right. going out. Yeah, that was. I wanted to shoot from underneath David. I wanted it to be like from The Shining when Jack Torrance is locked in the when Wendy locks him uh, in the yeah, in yeah, the yeah. freezer. So I wanted to shoot David like that, but it was so hot my my phone shut down after like twenty seconds. <laughs> oh man! But yeah, and the opening of the video, it's there, and then it's done. Yeah. <laughs> well, it. It's still probably the best almost live that we've ever done, which is awesome. Like, I mean, it was nice to go out with a bang. It was nice to have somebody uh, do the rooftop thing, you know? I don't think any band had ever played on that rooftop uh, before or since. So yeah, having... You two never... You two? <laughs> you? Um, no, the Beatles didn't either. It was a different rooftop. How'd you get involved doing the flipper thing, David? Several years ago, I guess that they got offered to do some shows in Italy that Steve, the drummer, and Ted, the guitarist, really wanted to do. Uh, but they didn't have a singer because Bruce Luce didn't want to do it anymore for whatever various reasons. I think uh, back pain was one of them. I think that they weren't getting along. I don't know. It's not really, I don't really know. But so Steve was in the market for a singer. And he lives in Los Angeles and he went to see Chrome play a show at uh, a place in Echo Park called The Echo. Um, and uh, I sang a, a song with, Creed, uh, with Helios Creed with uh, Chrome on that, that night. And Steve liked it, I guess, and asked me if I would sing for Flipper. And I thought about it for about half a second and said, yeah, yeah, I'll so do you're that. You're a huge fan ahead of time. Well, I mean, it had been years and years. I mean, I didn't listen to him probably since 1982 or 83. But when I did listen to him, the very beginning of Flipper was, they were extremely important to me. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and Steve told me that he was in the on his short list was Keith Morris, Ian Mackay, me, and uh, Moby. <laughs> <laughs> apparently, Moby is a big Flipper fan. Wow! Wow! But I, Sure, Moby claims that he he did actually do it, but who knows? Moby, really, really, uh, I can't imagine that. Anyway, it seems like Mr. Yao, you are the perfect singer for that band. In my, well, it was an honor. It was a truly an honor and and a heck of an experience. So you were assigned to Touch and Go for a long time, and then yeah, you, and then you went to find is weird. It's a weird. Right, right, like yeah, handshake. Yeah, it was a handshake. And then you went to um, uh, Geffen, right? Capital. Capital. Oh, Capital. Okay. And was that weird, like that transition? Because like you guys were so like integral to the the touch and go identity that I could imagine as a label owner, I could imagine feeling like really hurt by that, you know. Well, Corey, who ran Touch and Go, had given us permission years prior to do, you know, if he said, if there's somebody who has a better offer or something like that, you guys feel free to do what you want and stuff. And I do think that Corey's feelings were hurt. Um, my feelings were hurt. I, uh, it, um, it was very difficult. Uh, and it was uncomfortable having a, a handful of major labels sniffing our butts, you know. Um, and then it came down to capital because Gary Gersh, who was running the company at the time, seemed like an all right guy. He seemed like the kind of guy that you would hang out with, even if it had nothing to do with the music biz or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, but he seemed convinced, as did our A and R guy, who's a dear friend, Dave Ayers. They 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 all thought that we were going to sell a lot more records on Capitol, and I promised them I, that it wouldn't happen. It didn't happen, and we didn't. I think we sold maybe fewer records on those two Capitol releases than we had with the the Touch and Go releases. Hmm. Um, but I got a house. Yeah. So it was a. So it was a big payday initially. It was a big fat paycheck initially. Was your experience in like working on the records and stuff, like how different was that going from Touch and Go to Capital? Like, Well, um, uh, I guess all the records that we did on Touch and Go had Steve Albini engineering them. And Steve worked very quickly and very efficiently and we could, I don't remember the numbers, but I mean, early on, we it would only take a couple, a few days to, to do a record. Later, I think it took you know a handful of weekends. But um, I always really enjoyed working with Steve. Uh, and so then, when we had G -G -G Garth Richardson record the uh, first Capitol record, um, it was weird because it was the first time that there had ever been like produce producerly kind of um, game plans. Like he like came influence. to our practices and he'd, he'd sit yeah. in and practice and like, you know, Mac was a really good tempo keeper, but Garth, he insisted and he's not hitting the notes of the right, the beat at the right time. Huh. And 
rearrange the songs and like try try to rearrange the songs and stuff. But we worked. We used to practice so much and work on stuff so much that all of his ideas where he would um, rearrange something in a song, they all went back to the way we had it. Like just naturally as you were playing it, you couldn't. Yeah, he just, he just, no, 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 yeah, keep it the way it was. I'm, yeah. no, 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 keep, 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 keep <laughs> the way, 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 the way it was. Wait, does he, okay, does he actually have a stutter? Is that why he spells it? Did you guys choose him? We did. Yeah. I mean, I've never met the guy or anything. I got, I know very little about his career, but I, do love the Melvin's albums that he worked on. Yeah, he, he was he was good. And um, Joe Barisi, who did the mixing, uh, is also he also did the Melvin those Melvin's records. Yeah, I think. Yeah, Joe is um, yeah what they call in the biz a genius. We need to work with Joe Barisi. Yeah, and then even the next record we had Andy Gill producing, but Joe Barisi did the mixing. That was Blue. Yes. Interesting, man. I'm just fascinated by this like sort of distinction between indies and um, and major labels at that period of time, you know, in like mid mid nineties, you know. Right. There's things that major labels do, and that bands that get. That, I mean, we were very frugal. Uh, David Sims is an accountant and extremely good with money. You know, like some bands will want tour support; they want the label to give them money to go on tour. We never wanted to do that because we don't want them to give us money that we had then have to get yeah. increases our debt. Yeah. Right. Um, you don't want to take a loan. Yeah. With uh, oh. big giant tour buses because you don't get paid if you do that. Right. Um, cool. Yeah. Well, so a lot of the operating procedures that major labels uh, would consider normal, we didn't want to have anything to do with. Gotcha. So you sort of avoided a lot of the um, pitfalls of that world by being frugal. I think so. I think so. Cool. Okay, so you guys are artistic collaborators, but it seems like you're friends first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Um, Got to be that way. I heard a rumor that you guys have like a weekly calls on sundays fam soon that's no rumor <laughs> that's a science fact yeah adam i don't know how you have this ability to just like endear yourself to all these like the most like legendary rock stars in the world but um that's quite a skill man well a couple <laughs> yeah a couple like the, the good ones the ones who are actually good people ted nugent will collins <laughs> The Nuge, not to put you on the spot. I just think it's it's awesome that you are like a good enough guy to where you can just like move to LA and within a couple of years, you're, you're kind of best friends with David Yao. <laughs> Shall we talk about this new project with Melvin's? Yeah, David sings on one song, sings on one song. Actually, do you remember how you described the the vocals to me, David? I remember how I described Buzz. I don't remember how I described mine. I you described them as a man attempting unsuccessfully to rescue his family from a burning house. 
<laughs> oh, that's what I said. Mm -hmm. About oh, vocals. Okay, right. Yeah. So it was kind of like very guttural. You know, you don't really make up much words. It's just kind of. Bleh. The, these are Yao's vocals or Buzz's vocals. David's. Okay. Yeah, that's the one with slowed down drums and and uh, like gurgly moog. Look at that. There's the test pressing. Can you see that? That is saw so blade. Pretty cool. That's the test pressing of this shit. Melvin's and dumb numbers. David Yao. That's about the coolest looking record I've ever seen. <laughs> and this is just the, the idea is that it sort of uh, complements the artwork that Mackie. Did. Yeah, I'm excited about it, man. It's uh, it's gonna be, yeah, it's an exciting. It's always exciting to work with the Melvins for me because I, you know, uh, they were so formative to my my brain forming. When uh, I would drive around with David around L.A., uh, Prick was always in the CD player or really? your, uh, MP3 player. Is that your favorite uh, Melvin's album, David? Probably not. What's your favorite one? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Houdini. Yeah. Do you remember recording the vocals to that one song you did? Was it Dry Drunk? It's on the Crybaby? Yes, yes, I do. Because in the liner notes, they made it seem like you were just like shit faced the whole time. I was. Oh. You remember but that, was, that was Buzz's doing. There, there have been a handful of times I've recorded with bands that I wasn't in, where the producer or somebody just insisted that I drink more bourbon, which I gladly, you know. Wow. So yeah. he was he was enabling you to drink. He wanted yeah. you. Yeah. Also, on that same recording, we did a cover of Blockbuster by the Jesus Lizards. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I could not get the timing down right on that. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> a song he played hundreds yeah, of times. Got me in. And then also there were um there's backing vocals on that song of uh Kevin Manis and me doing uh Sheep, just going bah, Oh bah, that was you? I, I thought that would was like a recording of an actual like goat or something. No, that that was Kevin and me. That's awesome. That's cool to know that that little secret. Uh, here's a, a little trivia, if you give a shit. Yeah. The uh, sort of vocal pattern or melody that I used on Dry Drunk was taken directly from If There Is Something by Roxy Music. All right. You can't tell because I can't sing, so it doesn't really, you can't tell. So the uh, the algorithm doesn't pick it up and uh, charge charge you. <laughs> no, no. And also, I think, that's, I think that's maybe one of three times I intentionally ripped somebody off for a vocal thing. You did it on, on our song, on one of ours, uh, on Bury the Hatchet. Right. It, it was uh, When the Levee Breaks. Yeah. Cayenne Pepper. And then, oh, it, you did it at our uh, holiday party. Don't Wasn't that Dwayne's idea to, to do the, uh, <laughs> so Carol of the Tubular Bells, I think, the right. name of the song, right? And uh, we had, all these people in town and this was Thor's Thor and dumb numbers doing this track. Like that's a combination of Carol of the bells and tubular bells, the exorcist song. Um, and David 
provided like the most hilarious vocals that have ever been put to a Christmas song. And I play it every year. Sweet silver bells all seem to say, Throw cares away, Christmas is here, bring in good cheer to young and old, meek and the poor. Dark are the bells, sweet silver bells all seem to say, Throw cares away, Christmas is here, bring in good cheer to young and old, meek and the poor. Don't go and say, 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 give the credit to Dwayne Dennison. He's the one that around Christmas time, he often would just go, don't go insane, 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 don't go. And I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, man. <laughs> I don't know what to say about it. It's like, it's so uh, uh, fitting for the holidays. <laughs> And also, it makes me go insane, you know, like, it, yeah. What is that song? I think that song is called The Christmas Song, isn't it? The one, yeah. and it's got that line that I love so much about fall on your knees, which sounds so cool when like a, a choir or like a boys choir or whatever does that. It's just, it's, it's, in, it's incredible. It's massive. Yeah. Your mom used to like that? Um, I think my mom and dad really liked that a bunch. Yeah, I remember you saying that your mom liked that. 
And then that morning I was singing a uh, Neil Young song and then you threw that in as well. Yeah, I think I had some stupid idea about how I wanted to start a song like that. Just go, look out, mama, there's a white butt. Ah! And then just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did that. Oh, and that's what you threw in at the end. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun, man. That was probably the best holiday party we've ever had, man. That was cool. I love the floor of that recording studio. It's all made up of old basketball floors, wasn't it? It was a post office. Oh. But the, yeah, but I think the floors were of that nature, you know, yeah. a glossed wood or whatever, you know. What's your guys' favorite part about working together creatively? Everything with David is fun, like running errands. Going to the post office is fun. Everything is fun. Are you his personal assistant or something? Well, actually, I'm thinking of a particular post office run is when we were filming the making of the monoliths. Oh, yeah. And uh, we went to the post office to mail those, the cement blocks out. An idea we came up with that at that expensive ass sushi place. Remember? Hey, that paid for the fucking meal. Well, I had made ones before that were two pieces. I think that, okay. I mean, the way I remember it going down is you sent us the cover of the record, like the digital image. And I was like, oh, this is a picture of cement. Hey, David, is, do you think that there is a way that we can do actual cement artwork for a certain number of these? And you were like, yeah, I think so. Let me try some things out. And then you came up with that, that design of the monolith. Right. While I was in Chicago, I made, when I started doing photo retouching freelance, uh, the first portfolio I made, I did out of um, a oak wood with uh, dovetail joints and stuff. And it was just really nice, and, but it was big and heavy and cumbersome and stuff. And then the next, the next one I did was cool too, but I wanted something that was really impressive. And so I made these cement things. So the one that we put the record in is like half of what I had done originally, where the two pieces screwed together and then there was a DVD inside that was um, interactive of my portfolio. And so uh, the, it's kind of just half of that. Modified to work with a 12 inch instead of a DVD. Yeah. 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 I think it's a brilliant design, man. I only have one copy of it because it, you know. Yeah, I don't, have, I don't have one. You don't have one? Oh man, do you want mine? <laughs> you can have mine. You're the one person in the world that can have it. No, no, no. You keep it. And I threw well, it. It's in a display case here at the office, dude. It's a high watermark on our uh, list of weird packaging that we've done. And to answer your question, Adam's just fun. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are both fun. You're easygoing and you can. Uh... It's awesome that you're friends first and it also just happens to work out that you are great musical collaborators. <laughs> if we weren't friends first, it never would have, we would never. Yeah, I don't, that, that's weird. I mean, I know of bands like, for instance, the Laughing Hyenas, when they were a band years ago, they'd fight at every practice, you know, very often mm. like fist fights and shit like that. I can't fathom what that's like. I mean, right. uh, have we talked enough about the Melvins? collaboration or i have had this idea for five years or six years or something it was always meant to be the follow-up to the stranger ep that we did in 2017 but it just took a long time i remember first 
talking to Buzz about it after the, at the premiere of the Melvins documentary. So I think, I think that was 2016, but it took COVID for it to happen. Because Buzz was sidelined from touring. Right. Yeah. It was already my idea that I wouldn't sing on this, but uh, I got COVID and I couldn't sing for like a year. So that kind of worked out. Hey, at least you have Buzz Osborne and David Yao to stand in for you. Yeah, and I guess there are some positive things that have come out of this uh, bizarre-ass pandemic. What's that? Uh, the air in Los Angeles is a lot cleaner than it was before the pandemic. Actually, dude, there's this David Attenborough fucking documentary recently that I saw that was examining locations around the world like and how nature has recovered since the pandemic. And it was incredibly hopeful, man. It was like, holy shit, our planet is way more resilient than we thought. You know, right. there was this city in India. As soon as the pandemic happened and the smog cleared out, they're like, holy shit, we have a panoramic view of the Himalayas in this town. That's pretty funny. I live right at the foot of the San Gabriel Mountains, but I swear that when it first got clear and they were reporting that Los Angeles had the cleanest air of any metropolitan city on Earth, which is bizarre, but I could see mountains that I didn't know were there. Yeah. Yeah, dude. My cooking repertoire has grown. Yeah. Um, I bought an offset smoker during the pandemic. Yeah. What do you smoke? So far, it's been uh, ribs, brisket, uh, pork roast. Yeah. One of my jobs um, prior to running the label was working at a barbecue restaurant and uh, in the kitchen. And my job every morning was to like un unload the big smoker of the, the pork butts that had been smoking all night and then put on huge rubber gloves and like pull the pork like take it take out the shoulder bone and take off the like layer of fat and like mash it all together and and then i would smoke chickens and pull those and i did some calculation at some point where i realized i was like okay i worked there for this many years like this many days per week this many chickens per day and I was like, I've dismantled 200,000 chickens with my bare hands. Moo! Something like that. I can't remember the actual number right now. But yeah. It's a lot. It's, it's an uh, upsetting amount. <laughs> you mentioned barbecue. And uh, here in the Netherlands, if you ask for hot sauce, it's like, oh, yeah, we have, we have barbecue sauce. They don't have just, like, pepper sauce? No, they ordered nachos from someplace, and they used sweet and sour sauce. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's such a mild palate here. So David sent me a clear package of... Are you all out of that stuff? Or you still have some more chili powder, right? Yeah, yeah. So David made a custom uh, chili powder, which is amazing. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And so we had some good Mexican food for a while. Hell yeah. Are you uh, speaking Dutch yet? My English is getting worse, but my Dutch is not getting any better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> David, are you uh, working on any films? Oh, a couple of weeks ago, I shot um, a movie for a couple of days where I play a character who reminds me of um, James Mason in Lolita. What was his name? Humphrey Humphrey? Uh, Humbert Humbert? Humbert Humbert, yeah. 
It's like a cross between him and Bill Macy in Fargo. He's just kind of a worm who loves a girl who's far too young for him. Wasn't that dude also in happiness? Yes. And you know, you can't say happiness without saying penis. (laughs) Are you allowed to talk about the movie that you shot in Bulgaria? I think so. Yeah. Let's hear about it. What's the Bulgarian movie? Um, This feller, Macon Blair, who's just an absolutely incredible guy, uh, who wrote and directed a movie called I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was in, and it was in it one best picture at the Sundance thing and all that stuff. Well, he has written a reimagining of, uh, of uh, The Toxic Avenger, and uh, Peter Dinklage is, plays The Toxic Avenger, and uh, Kevin Bacon and Elijah Wood play the bad guys. Oh, I play a character who Macon described as a cheerful hobo with anger management issues. (laughs) uh, Typecasting again. I swear there were four times, three or four times reading the script where I laughed so hard I couldn't breathe. Wow. uh, That's saying a lot, but it's really, really good. And hopefully it'll be out in the, the late spring or the summer. Wow, dude. That's awesome. The trauma guys produced. Lloyd Kaufman? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So yeah, this was like late seventies, early eighties. Nineteen eighty-four, the first one came out. Okay. Cool. The year I was born. July fourth. Yes. Cool. I mean, that sounds like an amazing project, man. What's it been like, like transitioning between music and film like that? Do you feel like, like when you're on stage, are you acting in the same way that you're acting? No, no, no. When we're playing a show, I'm I'm as me as I can be. And when you're doing a, a movie or something like that, it's uh, I try <laughs> I try not to be me at all. Yeah, I get a huge kick out of it. I really enjoy it. And I I've told Adam this before. Like when when things are going right in a scene and you kind of aren't yourself and whoever you're acting with isn't their self and the place you are isn't real and everything. I, I don't know of any other thing like it. Mm. it. It's almost analogous to sex or drugs because it's so personal and separate from the real world. Yeah. I got a question for both you guys that I'd like you to answer individually. What is the single worst and or weirdest live performance you've ever played? Adam? Adam, you want to go first? Well, I think you were actually there, Carl, is when we were on tour with My Bloody Valentine. And the tour started in Canada. We played in Toronto and Montreal, and those were good shows. And then we got back to the USA, and our first show was in Boston. But the venue, the House of Blues in Boston was such dicks. And the stage crew didn't lock the wheels on. So my guitar cabinet was in the bottom of the road case and they didn't lock the wheels down. Uh. Jay Mascus is standing there side of stage, you know, watching on, you know, behind me. And I go to stick the head of my guitar into the cabinet, you know, because it just creates this kind of cool, deep, resonant kind of feedback. 
And when I did that, the cabinet started rolling backwards. Uh, you know, to Jay Mascus. And Jay's standing there just kind of smoking. <laughs> yeah, it's like amateur <laughs> hour. I have, I have a funny memory of that show. It was right after we arrived. And I was like tour managing that tour. So traveling with you guys and me and Murph were just walking down the street. I don't know. We went to go get some coffee or something. And we were, we were like walking back to the venue. Um, and someone from across the street, this is like a, I don't know, four lanes street or something like a pretty far distance. Someone from across the street yells at us like, hey, can I have a cigarette? And Murph was like, sorry, this is my last one. And then he just goes, fuck you. <laughs> and I was like, that's Boston, man. That is the Boston experience right there. Like, fuck um, you. This is a Boston experience that I have that I had nothing to do with. But um, I believe it was Todd, my girlfriend's brother. I'm not sure who or what, but you know how Bostonians have such a reputation of being aggressive without having to be provoked. Um, apparently they were near the beach or something. And so uh, some girl was uh, in her bikini and she was just completely white pale. And this guy walks by and goes, get some fucking kala. <laughs> <laughs> what an asshole, man. Come on. That's hilarious. A mass hole. Yeah. Mass hole. Exactly. Yeah. Um, David, what's your, your, your weirdest and or worst live experience ever and that's so difficult you know i've done about two and a half thousand shows i don't know which one uh like um is that a real number it's a it's 2500 shows about about that yeah yeah wow so um do any stick out in your mind one time we played in boise idaho and there were three people there uh is, is this scratch acid jesus lizard this was the Jesus Lizard in probably 1991. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and uh, two of them were like like drunk frat boys, and the other was uh, an American Indian. And uh, they were heckling us. And it's the only time I ever turned to the other guys and said, hey, uh, you want to stop? But we didn't. We played our whole set for these three fucking idiots. The weirdest thing about that story to me is that frat boys and Native Americans would get along with about anything, you know? I don't know that they were. I mean, they were just all drunk and but going. All three of them were heckling you, right? Uh, play a good song. Hey, play Jesus, you know? You brought together two. I, I see a beautiful story there. You brought together two disparate cultures. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> In, I think, 91, we played at the FNR in Eindhoven, Holland. Uh, and uh, Boss Hogg was opening up the show. And this is in the Jesus Lizard book. I don't know if you have the book or not. Oh, yeah. Remember we released a sort of version of it? Of course you have it. <laughs> yeah, but have you looked at it? Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, and so Boss Hogg opened the show, and uh, Christine Hernandez, uh, John Spencer's wife, was wearing this skirt or this black dress that was right at the crotch. And um, she was wearing red panties underneath it. And everybody in the audience was, I mean, even even women were like going like this, you know. <laughs> to get, and, stuff. 
and she was just so beautiful. And I was going, how the fuck are we, how am I supposed to follow that? Yeah. Um, it was winter time. And so I had long johns. And so I thought, well, I'll just wear my long johns and that's as good as I can do. And Christina said, uh, what are you, why are you in your long johns? And I explained the situation to her and she said, well, you want to wear this? And I said, yeah, yeah, I do. And so we went into this other room and she got undressed and gave me her soaking wet panties and I <laughs> in my dress and uh, it was a uh, really, uh, really ugly on me. It, it was not uh, pretty and inviting the way it was on her. And I've seen videotape of it and it's hideous, but it's pretty funny. <laughs> right on. Any parting words, guys? Um, thank you. Thank you, David. It's been, thank you. yeah, it's been a fucking honor to work with both you guys. Just want to say that. Thanks. Carl. And I hope to continue doing it a lot more in the future. Me too. <laughs> Each hour. All right. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Talk soon. <laughs> All right. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Joyful Noise Radio Hour.